It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I'm really excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Tim Sanders. Tim is the author of four books, including the New York Times bestseller, Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence. But today we're going to talk about his latest book, Deal Storming, The Secret Weapon That Can Solve Your Toughest Sales Challenges. Now, most everyone who listens to the show is probably aware of how the sales environment has changed over the past 15 years, how it continues to rapidly evolve. More competition, less differentiation, busy, distracted prospects, pre-educated prospects, you toss into this mix the requirement to sell large, complex deals, and it's no surprise that many sales teams get stuck. And it's no surprise, actually, that small enterprises and startups trying to sell big deals find the challenges to be the most daunting. But our guest today, Tim Sanders, has written an interesting new book about the process he developed through his experience and research to help seller and buyer alike actually get unstuck and across the finish line. And Tim, welcome to the show. Andy, glad to be with you. So take a minute, introduce yourself. Uh, how'd you get your start in sales, and how'd you get to the point of writing this book? Sales has been a lifelong thing for me. I got my first sales job in the 70s. I was a sophomore in high school. I sold radio for a little FM station in Clovis, New Mexico. And it intrigued me, this whole process of B2B sales, pitching, closing, prospecting. So pretty much for my career, I pursued that. I went on to sell for Discovery Channel. I was one of Mark Cuban's first employees at AudioNet, his startup that became Broadcast.com. After he sold that company to Yahoo, I went to Yahoo with the acquisition. Um, I led the Value Lab, which was the SWAT team for big deal opportunities or big account crises. I became the chief solutions officer by 2001. For the last decade, I've been consulting with all types of B2B companies on how to improve their ability to get unstuck or to save key accounts through the process I call deal storming. Right. We're going to talk about that. So. Interesting, you serve. You talk about uh, Value Lab sort of being both sides of the coin, right? Both sort of opportunistic as well as sort of a rescue mission, right? And which one was it more frequently? I think we were more about new business. But what what happened for us is we had a key account opportunity with uh, P and G. Mm-hmm. For those for those of you in sales, you know what that stands for: Procter and Gotham. <laughs> Procter and Gotham. We had an issue with P and G around a misunderstanding having to do with pricing. We've all had those. Um, This particular uh, situation, though, bubbled up to the number two person reporting to the CMO, who basically put the kibosh on a multi-million dollar existing program. This was in late 01. Because they didn't like the pricing? This guy got stuck on this ethics thing where he was just really ticked off that he thought he'd been lied to. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was going to make an example out of it and move the entire account over to AOL Time Warner, our bitter rivals. Right. And uh, so it was a, a unique opportunity for us to go in. And, you know, first of all, I can't solve this issue of the perception of lie. We had to work that out on an interpersonal basis. But what we had to do was use the Value Lab Research Facility to create a really good A-B for them to understand how much performance they lose by moving to AOL Time Warner by spite. And it had to be more than 20% performance for this guy to get over it. So that was really unique. So we kind of backed into proving value to save an account. And after that, it ch- kind of changed my job. And so within about six months, 
one of our, our founders, Jerry Yang, had uh, come up with an idea that we needed the wolf. You've seen the movie Pulp Fiction, right? So the mm-hmm. wolf. Right, right. So, so the chief solutions officer, that's what I did. So, so basically, I worked on big opportunities slash big crises because what we learned, Andy, is it's the exact same process. There is no different process in collaborating around winning a new piece of business or bringing back a key account that's gone away or in danger of going away. Hmm. So, yeah, we know now the sales environment has changed. I talked about it in the open. You know, it's, it's uh, diverse, dispersed, hyper-competitive, rapidly commoditized. How does how how it seems like the whole process of selling a big deal becomes I don't know an order of magnitude more difficult, especially if you're a smaller company. Exactly. Now, now I will say though, for those of you on the call, that are podcasts that are listening that are smaller companies, later on I'll explain to you how this deal storming process, although it was developed in enterprise, works spectacularly for you in the LinkedIn world we live in today. But let's back up, Andy, and talk about this changing sales world we live in. The way I like to frame this is that when you make a sale in B2B, you do it by traversing four levels. Like think about it like playing a video game. The first level of the sale is contact. That's where you get through to decision makers, influencers, or informers. They give you the lay of the land. You begin to understand the influence map. You make that first contact, which gives you enough information to get to the second level, which is conceive. So based on the information you've attained, plus what you know about your company's capabilities, you begin to conceive of the deal. That could be uh, either a product, a customization of a product, a combination of products, maybe a cross-selling combination, or even a combination of your products and services and products and services of a third party. But regardless, the conceive level is really important. I mean, this is where we spend our time in social sell, our social our solution selling, really figuring out that win-win. So in the conceive level, you got to figure out what's going to ROI for the customer. The third level is the convince level. That's where you have to convince them that they need to change the way they do business. Because we don't sell products and services, we sell change. Exactly. Right? So you convince them that the problem is so bad, they need a painkiller, and you're the best painkiller available to them. And then the final level is the contract level, and that's where you get a signed binding agreement. Every level is harder. Contact is harder because no one returns phone calls or emails. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't drop in. It's harder than ever to figure out what that influence map looks like, so you've got to be a hacker. That's why social selling has become such an innovation. The conceive level is harder than ever because – there's so much more pressure on organizations to reduce cost of ownership, increase governance. So now we're not just selling to one person. We're having to lobby to a committee of people, all with different agendas. The CEB, Corporate Executive Board, calls it the 5.4 problem, right? 5.4 decision makers. So we have to navigate that through the conceive and convince levels. And the biggest problem I see with the convince level is that the client does their own research. And we get in so late in the process, they have almost no t- – nothing surprises them anymore, right? Their tolerance for however we cleverly illustrate our value is going up. So the shelf life for every one of our creative persuasive devices is going down. And then, of course, contracting remains very difficult, especially in a world of increased scrutiny over contracts and in a world, too, where time is not on your side because of the merger acquisitions environment. So at every step of the way, Andy, it just gets more and more complicated, putting more pressure on us to become more innovative 
to solve these problems faster than our competition. Well, and that's such a key deal too, right? How do you be innovative to solve it faster than the competition? Right, because um, that's the sustainable competitive advantage in exactly. business right now. It's really. how you. Well, and this is yeah. I mean, it's how I wrote. That's why I wrote about it in my first book. It's more about how you sell, less than what you sell. It's sort of rapidly commoditized environments, right? Right, exactly. So I love the phrase you use that a a done deal is a thousand problems solved. You know it is, and and that was a big breakthrough for me when I finally realized that. Because I grew up in what I called the bewitched generation. So the bewitched, <laughs> I'm dating myself here. If, if, if you're on the podcast. Twink, twink, you're, twinkle your nose and solve yeah, the problems, right? It's on Nickelodeon now for those of you a little younger. But, but bewitched was a world where Samantha came up with an idea, gave it to Darren. He made the pitch and they won the deal. And it was a world filled with the search for the big idea, the game-changing idea. And we always thought it was that one big idea, that one big thing we would do that would kick the door open and make an account happen. But it doesn't work that way, really. It's four levels, dozens of problems per level. And I'll tell you where I came up with this realization. I had a speaking gig where Ed Catmull, president of Pixar, was a co-presenter with me. And I'm backstage just talking to him effusively about how much I love Toy Story. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And in particular, Andy, I really think John Lasseter, his VP of creative, mm -hmm. is a genius, right? Because Lasseter's the guy, when they were still a software company, that comes up with the little 30-second commercial Wally. -E. Right. And it was really emotive. It blew Steve Jobs away, their number one investor in Pixar. So then Lasseter said, I think we can make a whole movie. So Lasseter comes up with this idea about telling a movie uh, from a toy's point of view about a boy and his toys and coming of age and making the entire movie in the computer. So I'm talking to Ed going, what a genius Lasseter is. And Ed looks at me and says, man, that was an ugly baby upon arrival. <laughs> that, 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 that idea was problematic at every stage. The technology didn't exist. Facial controllers, as he thought of them to be human and emotive, weren't developed. We had funding issues. He said, we had such scripting issues. Disney shut the film down on Black Friday nine months in. He goes, I never thought the film would get made. And then he looks at me and says, Toy Story, the movie you love, was a thousand problems solved. And he demystified that myth of creativity that we all live under, that it's the one big idea. And it really changed the way I approach deal solving, right? So, so everything then was like, I'm not looking for the big idea. I'm just looking for the next best play. And it can be a little thing. Like in one situation, we're stuck because the client doesn't believe our internal reporting about ad effectiveness. So we're going to go get Nielsen. We're going to invest 30 grand and they're going to analyze our ad effectiveness. Is that a big idea? Not in the scheme of things, but was it the next best play? Absolutely. It got us one step closer to landing that $7 million deal. Well, I think one of the, the real insights that I got from, from the book was that, and it sort of came from one of the examples you gave it with Pixar, is that you have to think differently about how you organize to solve the problems. You do. Instead you of just a manager and a sales rep sitting there tossing ideas back and forth, the team has to be different, has to have a different makeup, a different constitution in order to really be effective in this environment. Yeah, you know, it's a, it, it's, it goes like this. If the buyers are organizing into multidisciplinary teams, be they dysfunctional or not, the point is we have to do the same thing because their perspectives are wider than our perspectives. That's why so many times we keep getting beat. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, so for us, if we live in sales world, it's like, 
I wish I could show you an analogy here, but I'll just tell it to you, see if I can say it with words. It's like if you were looking through a very, very narrow telescope at the stars, but your, your, your aperture is so narrow, narrow, you just see the North Star, the star. Mm-hmm. That's how it is with sales. We just look down that pipe and all we see it's is the, the revenue the revenue and everything at the bottom of the funnel. And we back all the way to the top of the funnel. We're just staring down that little, little hole at the bottom of the funnel. But if you open up the aperture and you see that telescope point, it's a much wider point of view, you see constellations. And that's important because all creative breakthroughs are just pattern recognition, are mm-hmm. uncovering existing solutions. Mm-hmm. So everything new is two or more things combined. And most solutions I've seen in 100 deal storms were already on the shelf. We just weren't looking on the right shelf. You brought in somebody from marketing. You brought in somebody from finance, maybe a deal mentor from the outside market. And they would point it out to you and say, yo, Andy, what about that? And you would go, we can't do that. And they'd say, why? And you'd realize that in sales, we live under all these false constraints called our history. Right. Right. And it's sort of like what I was talking to you about earlier where I said, I – dismissed Twitter back when it wasn't even called Twitter yet, when the guys at iBlogger, you know, Jack Dorsey and and Ev, um, came to us with an idea for funding. And I was like, a stupid idea. We tried this this user-generated media thing back in 98, 99. We got burned on e-groups. It'll never work. That was a false constraint. Had somebody maybe a decade younger than me in that room that was still at Stanford as an engineer been in that room, he'd have looked at me and say, let me talk to you about current user behavior. And he would have blown my mind with his perspective, and we might have made a really smart investment. Yeah. Well, it's for people that are listening, I, mean, I just want to close the circle here. Is for if they haven't grasped it already, deal storming. It's a play on the word brainstorming, but it's it's a process that you develop to bring a collection of people together to you know, move a sales challenge forward. Yeah, and it's and the way to think about it is it's about combining the linear process of deal making. As I described to you, moving mm-hmm. on with the next best play, thinking about repercussions of the process, protecting the process whenever possible, and combining that with the lateral freewheeling brainstorming where ideas can come from anywhere. You marry the two of those together and you will manufacture solutions to a problem rapidly faster than if you just work in your own sales silo by yourself. Right. And I think two key points that come out of this that people, you definitely need to read the book and to get more of the detail. But first is that the collaboration is not just to find a solution, but really, to me, it prioritizes identifying the problem to be solved. And you had a couple of great examples in the book about that, that you know, having people from different perspectives said, well, maybe we're solving the wrong problem. You know, I mentioned before that a lot of times the solution was on the shelf. We weren't looking on the right shelf, and it all gets back to the problem statement. So many times we confuse a symptom with a root cause. Think about it from a medical standpoint. You know, it's like if you went to the doctor and said, I want you to fix my runny nose. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, you know, um, it might be nice for us to approach the, you know, bacterial sinus infection behind it. Because I can dry your nose up right now with a spray, but it's going to keep coming back. That's how a lot of salespeople behave when a deal gets stuck or an account goes in crisis is they look at the symptom. You know, and they, they think we got to solve that symptom. So a classic example I wrote about in the book is we had a situation with a consulting client where we thought that the root problem was the client didn't have enough budget. 
And so we said, how? so the whole discussion was going to be, how are we going to increase the budget? How are mm-hmm. we going to convince them to find incremental cash for us? And because deal storming allots at least 15 minutes for debate, candid debate about the problem statement, and because it wasn't just sales world in the room, it was marketing, operations, delivery team, and even a revenue recognition person, there was somebody that was a visitor to the group that had actually been on the client side in a similar situation, and they debated whether that was a symptom or the root cause. In other words, the client said, all we're going to pay you is 250k for this program when the program should be 500 and they're saying that's what the competitor will do that's the maximum you're going to have to make it work what had happened was that the salesperson didn't realize that they had failed to credibly differentiate their product which was rich media advertising from their competitors offering which was flat display Obviously, there's a big difference in terms of inventory, thus the pricing, but what they hadn't proven yet was that there was a big performance difference that could be believable. This outside person reconfigured a new problem statement the group kind of landed on, and once the group figured out that's the problem, and I mentioned this earlier, that's when they brought in Nielsen. So Nielsen comes in and proves that there's a 4x return on clicks when you use programmatic rich media, but yet the cost was only twice as much. And the client bought on because they had the money. And, and what's so interesting is that the marketing person who kind of like first debated the problem, she's like, they have a billion-dollar budget to buy all of advertising. It's like one of the big three automakers. She's like, you're missing the point. We always lead with the discount when we don't see the difference. And so it was really interesting to have that outside perspective because then it calls into play the problem. So in the book, I talk about the idea that you got to spend 15 minutes finding the root cause of the problem. You could use a variety of techniques, but I love the five whys. Start with the symptom of we're stuck and ask why about five times and you will always get to the root cause. You're peeling back the layers of the problem because if you don't find the root cause, it's like playing whack-a-mole. You, you think you solved the problem, but the deal's not moving forward. Find the root cause and you'd be surprised at how quickly you get to the next level. Exactly. Oh, good. Well, I love that. So we're going to take a short break here and come back and get into the details of how you organize for deal storming with my guest, Tim Sanders. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly a 1,000 companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. Hi, welcome back. Talking to Tim Sanders. We're talking about deal storming. And uh, we talked at first about uh, sort of the background of of deal storming. Now I want to move into some of the specifics about it. You have seven steps to organizing uh, yourself and implementing a deal storming process in your company. Maybe if you just run through the seven real quickly, and then I want to dive into the first two because I think they're really important for people to sort of start that process with. Absolutely. So deal storming is a repeatable process. It involves seven steps, and it's somewhat cyclical, meaning you'll go through the seven steps a couple of times on the biggest of deals or the biggest of account crises. But here's the good news, Andy: if you follow the seven steps, based on my experience, over a hundred deal storms, you have a seventy percent chance of winning. And that's much higher that's than the current. That's pretty great. 
Right. It's about 3x above what most organizations would say they have on a qualified product prospect fit opportunity that's sizable. Anyway, step one. Step one is to qualify because collaboration has a cost. Mm -hmm. Deal storming requires resources. So step one is to qualify the opportunity. Step two is to organize your team. You will organize your team based on who has the biggest stake in the outcome and who are the experts about your problem space. Okay. To, use a, to use a football analogy, the line and the skill positions, okay? Right. Um, step number three is prepare. Uh, th- this is a really important point here. Chance favors the prepared mind. The reason brainstorming fails is because you're throwing people into a room, dumping information on them, snapping your fingers and saying, okay, ideas. Creativity researchers will tell you incubation is where all the breakthroughs happen, meaning if you're going to have a deal storm meeting, you plan it to happen on Tuesday and you send a brief to everybody by Thursday that has all the details and an assignment for them to think about before the meeting and that changes everything. Step number four, convene. I didn't just say meeting, I said convene. You bring the team together and in less than two hours you set the next best play. You follow clear ground rules, you follow a clear agenda, and the account executive, not a senior executive, should be the facilitator of the meeting. Right. Step five, execute. Time is not on your side. A lot of things can go wrong. Your key influencers can leave. The company can be bought. A new competitor can swoop in. So it's all about rapid execution. And I, I, I talk about the idea that it's critical that you start and finish all execution with a prototype. Whether it's a prototype of a process, prototype of a creative uh, element, maybe if it's a new way you're in the convinced stage, but a prototype is worth a thousand meetings. Step number six, analyze. Analyze whether the play you chose is leveling up, whether you're making progress, whether you need to change your team, whether you need to close down the deal storm, or whether you've won the deal. And then finally, step seven is to report. It is critical that you report progress to your team members. Show them respect. Let them know what happened. Close the loop. And when you find an innovation that changes the game and breaks through and it's new and it's appropriate, then escalate it to senior management so they can test it a few more times and make it the new way we sell. Because the only reason to think outside of the box is to make it stronger, and we do that with reporting. Okay. So let's focus on qualified to to start with. So every deal that's difficult doesn't necessarily warrant a deal storm. Right. I mean, you want to create a deal storm that is in direct relationship to the strategic value of the opportunity and its degree of difficulty. So a deal storm can be, I, I call it the rule of three. Like, like two people is not a storm. That's just two people. <laughs> but three people can, especially if one person is outside of sales, right. that can be a small deal storm. Uh, uh, let's call that, you know, the, the trio of justice. Right. Uh, Or even the fantastic four. So you might only have three or four people on what you would consider a medium sized deal, but it's difficult, but you still think it's worthy of of, of approaching. And it could also be a medium sized deal in terms of how it breaks you into a new market as the deal becomes more important, either because of its revenue, because if you're a small company and you're breaking it into a new space, what it means to your reputation and position as the importance goes up, the size of the team grows. But now, What I really focus on here is it's not about adding dozens and dozens of people. It's about going wider and wider, starting to look 
beyond the edges of the sales organization. So let's say you're really approaching a big deal. It's really, really important, but it's really, really difficult. You're going to have to have a lot of perspectives to solve that problem. So you want to say, we'll have a couple of people from sales and we'll start getting these stakeholders from all the adjacent places, right? So we're going to get somebody from marketing. We're going to get somebody from the delivery operations team. We might bring somebody in from finance. We may bring in a customer champion or a partner that's strategic to us and we're going to create that wide team. I call it the Justice League at that point. Mm -hmm. But you're going to qualify against that simple formula, strategic value times degree of difficulty equals a score. And in the book, you know, I have a table for this. So you can look at it. But one thing I'll say is as you qualify the team and you decide how many you're going to have on it, a really good thing I read is research that says it's always one fewer person than you think you need. Because, Because here's the challenge. The more diverse perspectives you bring together, the more fault lines you have to manage, okay? Because everybody's got their own agendas. So you're bringing all these people together, it's a little harder to get everybody to go from me to we. But you can do it. But just remember, you get too many people in the room, you could be as dysfunctional as your buyers. Right. Now, one of the the key things, though, is that you do have instances, though, where your sales process is being properly applied, a deal is stuck, it doesn't necessarily warrant bringing these res- the cost of bringing these resources together to do the deal store. Right. I mean, sometimes it's either you're going to need to try it with a different target. You're going to need to try it again with uh, by, by questioning your existing collateral or information. And sometimes you need to shut that dude down. It's stuck. It's not going to happen. So th- there is that part of the qualification process. But I think the key is if it's important, if you're using this sales process and you're stuck – You may see it as an innovation challenge that your existing sales process has become somewhat antiquated in one of those levels. And that's really when deal storming can make a huge difference, not just on the deal at hand, but maybe the future of your company and how you go to market. Exactly. Okay, so the next step then is to organize. That is correct. Now, this is a really important step. So I mentioned before, as you organize the team, so let's say you've said it's a big opportunity, which means that we're probably going to have six to eight people from at least three disciplines. You know, just making this up as an example, the critical question you have to ask yourself is, who has the biggest stake in the outcome of this deal? Um, that could be someone who has to do the work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's usually your most – has the biggest stake in the outcome. Right. It might be someone who um, it impacts on um, with respect to uh, their goals. So, for example, for your branding, marketing, research group, sometimes winning a strategic deal has a huge impact on everything they're trying to do to position the company in the market. Sometimes a deal has a huge impact on your finance function around things like pricing, revenue, recognition, etc. But I want you to think of these stakeholders as the blockers and the tacklers. They're going to be your most engaged people. They're going to have information from the edges you've probably never heard before that is not in Salesforce or your CRM, they're going to be really valuable team players. Then the second part of it is you're going to bring in a few experts about your what you think your problem space currently is. They might have already sold to this kind of company, maybe sold to this exact company. They might be an executive uh, who's had a similar situation with a problem like this. Or maybe if you're stuck in that conceive level, they're experts on your product services or ROI formulas that can really help you get unstuck. But you're going to bring a few of these experts in. Think of them as the skill positions, receiver, running back, quarterback. But you got to have them all. Because, well, Andy, if you only have the skill players – 
you have no context and you're going to make a lot of mistakes out of expertise. If you only have your blockers and tacklers, you may not have that, that overarching perspective that can notice a pattern or notice two objects that can be put together to set the next best play. All right. So I agree 100%. So, so for people listening to this is first role you're going to fill is somebody that's the problem owner, as you call it. And it's mm-hmm. somebody that's, that's not a manager. Correct. So as you organize your team, it should be led by the person who has the greatest stake in the outcome, which is the account executive. And I really stress this. The AE runs the show. The manager is the sponsor. Okay. The manager is part of the show. They're the qualifier. They're saying, all right, Andy, you go build this team. I'm I'm telling you, these are the resources. These are the lines. The sponsor may help you recruit a little bit especially if it's outside of your department and you don't have influence. And the manager is going to attend the meeting, um, but they're not going to run the meeting. They're going to be able to speak based on their expertise about things like, is this logistically doable? Mm-hmm. Or will I go have those meetings on your behalf? And then quite frankly, they're going to coach that AE later about how well they ran the meeting. Um, you're going to have an information master or a scribe, as we used to call it, and that person's going to make sure nothing slips between the cracks that's set in the meeting. Because I don't want the AE to have to be writing everything down. I want them to be able to really get everyone in the room to reveal what they know and share what they think. And so you've got, we've gone through the roles. So there's the AE as problem owner, there's the manager as sponsor, there's the information master as scribe, and then everyone else, we call them resources. Because they're just bringing ideas. And they're bringing in the the willingness to do work to the project. And I think one of the things you bring out in the book that's really, really worthwhile for people to remember when they build this team is, is you use the term mirrors, but to seek out people in similar roles in your own organization or an organization that that participates with you that are sort of equivalent or equal to the influencers or decision makers that you're selling to because they have the perspective of being in that job. Yeah, good point, Andy. Very good point. So. When I'm early on in creating a deal storm and I was consulting with AEs, I always said, show me the influence map. I need to understand who are our champions, who are our beneficiaries, who are our blockers, and who are the sign-offs. And there's a map you can drop of all of them. You kind of look at it, and if you draw that map up, you're going to be like, we're stuck here. There, there is a sign-off person, uh, the chief information security officer, that's getting in the way of our SAS play. Right. Because that CISO is risk averse and they just want to buy the big three. So, so we have a problem. Well, you know what? Let's bring in our CISO or a CISO at one of our partner organizations. I used an example in the book from a company called Firemon that did that. And it's like a Vulcan mind meld where that CISO comes in and says, well, what you guys don't understand is how a CISO reports. Do you realize that we don't report like you would think to the CTO? We usually report to the CFO. So all we're concerned about is unforeseen costs of technology integration. And this thing looks scary. Yeah, so we completely, go, oh. completely changes your value proposition at that point. We're like, oh my God. So what if we did a deal where it's a fixed cost and if anything going in is wrong for systems integration, we own that problem. CISO goes, no, that's going to be a breakthrough. I'm just kind of making this up as an example, but only a mirror could tell you this. And so you want to think about that influence map and go find people on your team that might know something about that if that's why you're stuck is because of a person yeah. that's involved in the mix. The last thing I want to say about organizing, and this is super important, you do not invite people to come to a meeting. This is not how you build a deal storm because 
an invitation to coming to a meeting is like an invitation to, you know, having a colonoscopy. You know, can I book you for next Wednesday at 10? <laughs> no, I've got something i got to do then. Hopefully it's I more gotta, pleasant than that. <laughs> i got to be somewhere. It's called elsewhere. No, I don't know. Um, meetings are about as unpleasant as a colonoscopy or a root canal for most people. Right. They're long. They're disorganized. Nothing happens. So here's what I say. Don't invite people to come to a meeting. Invite them to join a team and share with them the cause. And yeah, that cause, you, that cause you, better us, be something. Us versus, us versus them. Right. Us against the I competitors. Mean, and that cause better have an emotional lever, right? That cause better put competition on the outside of the room. And my favorite one is rivalry because we're always up against somebody. A second favorite one, depending on the corporate culture, is pursuit of excellence. Like when I was trying to save big accounts that are going away, there's usually two reasons you lose them. Rep, a, a misunderstanding or a price issue. And so I would always evoke excellence in, in the right organizations that were focused on that as what brings us together regardless of whether we care about that $2 million deal from a revenue standpoint. Because if you get people that have a shared vision that transcends the money, you have a team. And in a real team, people reveal what they know, share what they think, march to a common goal. But most importantly, Andy, they look out for each other and they share their excess capacity to create synergy. Excellent. Love it. Love it. Well, for people, we're going to give you information in just a bit about where you can find out more about the book and to get your hands on it. It's really, I think, an important, essential read for anybody that's working with major accounts or big deals these days. So we're going to move to the last segment of the show here. I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests. And the first one's really a hypothetical scenario I pose, which is, and you're the star of that show, mm-hmm. is that you've just been hired as a new sales leader at a company whose sales have stalled out. So what, what two things could you do the first week on the job that sort of have the biggest impact? I'm going to go Columbo inside that company to find out what its capabilities really are. Because usually when sales go really south, there's only two reasons. They've lost sight of their product prospect fit or their sales process is obsolete against the market opportunity. Mm-hmm. So step one is always to figure out what is our product prospect fit. And I'm going to go beyond the products or services. I'm going to go to the history of them, the stack, the technology or the intellectual property stack that sits behind them. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to try to understand more about the existing partnership chain. So that's step number one. And I really believe it's the most important step. It reminds me of the Abraham Lincoln quote, however it really was said, that if I had six hours to chop down a tree, (laughs) I'd spend four hours sharpening my axe. And then the second thing I would do um, is I would have a lot of discussions with key customers, with my salespeople right by my side, not to belittle them, um, to understand their purchase user experience. Um, because that's going to help me understand where the process works or doesn't work. And I guess if there was a third step, we would take a look at our competitors' sales process, especially the ones that are outperforming it, and we'd overlay it on the existing process. And sometimes it's like it's like a the the, the tide goes out, and you can see all the bones, right. you know, on the shore. So so those are my three steps: go Colombo. Talk to some key customers, but don't disrespect your salespeople by doing it without them by your side. And then finally, uh, just do a comparison of a sales process with those that are doing better than you. Great answer. Okay, so rapid fire questions for you. You can give me one word answers or you can elaborate if you wish. The first one is when you're selling, you yourself, Tim, what's your most powerful sales asset? Curiosity. Curiosity doesn't kill the cat. According to Sam Walton, it kills the competition. Right. 
I ask one more stupid question, and it usually leads to uh, uncovering a real opportunity. Who's your sales role model? Stephen Covey, Sr. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Um, his seven habits of highly affected people should be called seven habits of highly affected salespeople. Right. Um, because everything he talks about is so critical to success in this space. Okay. One book besides, your, besides any of your own that every salesperson should read. Um, ooh, that's a really good question. So let me center on it. Let me center on it. Um, I'm going to say give and take by Adam Grant. Um, surprising answer maybe, oh, but, 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 but here's the idea. Um, if you're an otherish type person, you will gather better information, uh, whether it's inside the company or out in the field. And everything you do that leads to success is about improving the quality of information available to you. Right. Givers get better information than takers, and it's easy for us in sale to remember, you know, think like we eat what we kill, and it's really easy for a salesperson to naturally be a taker. So I like give and take. I think it's a paradigm shift for salespeople. Excellent. All right. Great selection. Now, here's a tough question. So what's uh, what music's on your playlist right now? Ooh, yeah, baby. Love that. So um, – I'm really liking the new Mikey Snow. That's mm -hmm, the Scandinavian mm -hmm, act. Mm -hmm. They've got a new single called Genghis Khan. I um, really dig that record. Uh, my wife and I just saw Gary Clark Jr. the other night. Oh, um, what great. an amazing guitarist. He just yeah. killed. Um, and um, let me tell you, what is in my car right now? I am listening to a new country record by Old Dominion. Um, they're real progressive, like Florida Georgia line. Right. I really, I really kind of dig that record. And then um, I'm still listening to the weekend. I kind of got back into that recently, even though there's a little bit too much D and P on it. But um, <laughs> he's well, he was, he's been on TV a lot recently, so I think that's uh, sort of back in it. Yeah, Tricky's got a new record too. If you guys like down tempo, Tricky's new record is brilliant. All right, no, I have to check that one out. But yeah, good selections. All right, good selections. So. Last question for you. What's the first sales activity you do every day? I um, I get up and uh, I rehearse the coming day mentally um, before I check my email. So so I learned this a long time ago from Horst Reschelbacher, who uh, was the founder of Aveda, mm -hmm. you know, shampoo right, and aromatherapy. Right. And he always talked about where he found his center of calmness. He said, you know, the rest of the world jumps out of bed and – you know, they start the coffee, they check their email, they go on social media, they watch cable news, and they wonder why they're like, you know, scrambling their bra brain for breakfast every day. And he doesn't. I mean, he gets up every day and he reads out of a book for a few minutes and kind of centers himself. And then he, he calls it rehearsing his dance moves. And I do that a lot. I mean, if you think about your coming day, not just your schedule, but the things you're going to try to accomplish, and you kind of think through the hurdles, you'd be surprised how much more resilient you are when you reach those hurdles later in the day. So I'll rehearse it, you know, with the with good, bad, and ugly and interesting. And then during the day, I always feel that sense of deja vu all over again, to quote Yogi Berra. <laughs> Yogi Berra. So, so, so just just make sure you invest the first 15 minutes of your day in, in, in empowering yourself and not handing the keys over to the outside world. And you'd be surprised how much cooler Luke you can be throughout that day because uh, it's important, Andy, because emotional intelligence is 35 times more powerful than physical intelligence, right. and mourning determines everything. Got it. Well, great answer. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show today, Tim. We could 
have spent three more sessions like this talking about this book. So tell people how they can find out more about the book and about you. Wonderful. Just visit dealstorming.net, dealstorming.net. You can download a free chapter from the book. You can buy the book. If you buy a book, I also give you a two-hour online video training program to go with it and share with your team. I'm on all the social networks. I am at Sanders Says. So that's my last name, Sanders, and says like Simon says. Perfect. Yeah, they'll be on the show notes page for this podcast, so you can get that information if you don't have it beforehand. So again, thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Andy. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And one easy way to do that is to make Accelerate a part of your daily routine on your commute, in the gym, or at your morning sales huddle, because then you'll make sure you don't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Tim Sanders, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining us. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.